Happiness is a very wide, encompassing word. Happiness can range from the more even-keeled, positive emotions of contentment, peacefulness, and gratitude to the more volcanic experiences of joy, delight, and even ecstasy. In the founding documents of this country, Thomas Jefferson wrote about our unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And many books and articles are written each year about happiness. What is it and how can I get more of it? But happiness is only one of the major emotions that are sometimes listed as glad, mad, sad, and bad. Now, bad kind of encompasses fear and shame, but those don't rhyme, so we say bad. And the 13th century Sufi mystic poet, uh, Jalaluddin Rumi, wrote about how these different emotions sweep through our lives. He wrote about it in a poem titled, The Guest House. This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness as an unexpected visitor. Rumi's advice is welcome and entertain them all. He says, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. That guest may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes. Now that may all be easier said than done, but there is some wisdom in Rumi's advice to strive to witness without judgment whatever emotions are arising within you, knowing that even the most intense will fade in time, at least in their intensity. As the saying goes, the only way out is through. Now, it's also true that some among us are nat more naturally optimistic, while others among us are more naturally pessimistic. Others, Still others among us are more even-keeled, have a more natural equanimity. In the story for all ages, Laura shared some about what made her happy as a child, and maybe that triggered some memories within you of what made you happy as a child. And as an adult, one of our invitations to happiness can sometimes be getting back in touch and doing some of those things that actually made us happy as a child that can actually still make us happy as adults if we'll give ourselves permission. Science has shown us that activities that are totally immersive, that put us in a state of what psychologists call flow, that those activities are significant sources of happiness and pleasure on a consistent basis. But giving yourself permission to be fully absorbed in an activity can be difficult. We live in an age of many distractions, you know, with our smartphone and technology. Think of the difference between going to a movie theater and actually turning your phone off and watching a truly excellent and engaging film there in the dark, where the only thing is that um, excellent and engaging film. And one, my biggest test for whether a film truly is engaging, do you know the watch test? That if ever during a film you look down at your watch to see how much time has passed or how much time has left, that is not an excellent and engaging film. So and the number of times you look at your watch, the less engaging and excellent it is. 
So think about the difference between that and watching TV while scroll, you know, having your laptop on your lap and looking at Facebook and Twitter and your phone buzzing occasionally and you're texting and different people are coming in and out of the room. Think about the difference between those two experiences as far as their level of immersiveness uh, and their ability to cultivate flow. So some examples of, of other activities that one can engage in to have to give you a higher um, likelihood of having uh, immersiveness and flow. Things like savoring an excellent meal, uh, dancing, having, a, having an intense conversation with a good friend, creating art, painting and sculpting, and writing, photography, going out and hiking, cooking, hosting a dinner party, gardening, singing in a choir, reading a great novel. Now, your personality and proclivities will determine which of those activities are most likely to be immersive for you. And this insight about the importance of carving out space and time in your life for those activities that you find fully absorbing doesn't mean that you have to try to spend all of your time you know, in the zone. Rather, it's an encouragement to discern, are there ways that you can have inc- increasingly more um, immersive activities in your life? One of my favorite stories along these lines is from the novelist Norman MacLean. He tells about his experience with the physicist A.A. Michelson. MacLean writes that when I was a young teacher and still thought of myself as a billiards player, I had the pleasure of watching A.A. Michelson play billiards every noon. By then, he was one of our national idols, being the first American to win the Nobel Prize for measuring the speed of light, among other things. And to me, McLean writes, he took on an added luster because he was the best amateur billiards player I had ever seen. One noon, while he was shaking his head for having missed an easy shot after a long run of 35 or 36 shots, I said to him, you're a fine billiards player, Mr. Michelson. But he shook his head and said, no, no, I'm, I'm getting old. I can still make those, you know, distant, long cushion shots, but those, uh, I'm losing my touch on the short ones. And he chalked up, and instead of taking the next shot, he finished what he had to say. He said, you know, billiards is a good game, but it's not as good a game as chess. And chess, though, is not as good a game as painting. And he made it final by saying, but painting is not as good a game as physics. And then he hung up his cue and he went home to spend the afternoon painting on his front lawn. Now you can think about what might be the parallels in your life. For me, it might be the equivalent might be something like Ultimate Frisbee is a very good game. But Frisbee is not as good a game as watching and discussing excellent films. And film criticism is not as good a game as preaching sermons and teaching classes and writing books. But then I might still go home and watch an excellent film. Now, in some ways, the approaches we've been exploring so far for the pursuit of happiness are relatively mainstream and mundane. So what about more extreme potential sources of unhappiness or or happiness? Consider, for example, scientific studies into the comparative effects on happiness from major life-changing events, like winning the lottery on one hand and becoming paralyzed on the other. Studies show that humans are generally terrible at what psychologists call affective forecasting. That is, predicting how we're going to feel in the future. We're terrible at it. Remember that opening line from the Rumi poem? 
This being human is a guest house every morning a new arrival. And although there are outliers and exceptions to every trend, studying the long-term effects of those two life-changing events that I mentioned, winning the lottery and becoming paralyzed, it turns out that most of us grossly overestimate both the intensity and the duration of our emotional reactions. I have close friends who have become paralyzed. I do not say this lightly, but studies have shown, and I've seen this um, with friends, is that within a year, both lottery winners and people who become paralyzed have both on average returned most of the way to their baseline level of happiness before that event happened. In that first year after winning a multi-million dollar jackpot, lottery winners get this significant boost in short-term happiness. They can do some things like pay off their house, buy a new house, quit their job, get a new job, not you know whatever they want to do, travel, whatever you like. But within a few months, all of those new acquisitions, they quickly become a new normal. And after that short-term happiness boost that comes from that change in status, as that begins to fade, lottery winners tend to return to their former baseline level of either happiness or unhappiness. There's also often conflict that develops between friends and family members over how and if you're going to share those lottery winners. That is a source of unhappiness for many. As the saying goes, Wherever you go, there you are. And that includes being on the other side of winning $20 million. You're still there with all your emotional baggage, or just even if you're $20 million richer. All that being said, studies also show that lottery winners are still glad they won. You know, if they had to go back, they wouldn't change it. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum are studies who, uh, of people who become paralyzed and face this intense um, initial devastation. But just as the lottery winner had an initial surge of happiness that levels out, so too paralysis tends to have an initial surge in depression that also levels out. Our human brains have both an incredible sensitivity to short-term change as well as a tremendous long-term capacity to adapt to whatever the new normal is in ways that are difficult for us to see in advance. Remember, we're terrible at effective forecasting. As the physicist Stephen Hawking has said about his motor neuron disease, my expectations were reduced to zero when I was 21. Everything since then has been a bonus. Now, lottery winners tend to assume at first that they will never be sad again. People who are suddenly paralyzed assume they will never be happy again. Neither of those tend to be true. Relatedly, our human capacity to adjust um, in a relatively short time to any new normal also means, for example, that um, concerns about normalizing some of President-elect Trump's erratic behaviors are actually important to heed. History has shown us that we humans can all too easily become adjusted to horrific um, things and setups in society. As the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, there are certain things in our nation and in our world which I, to which I am proud to be maladjusted and uh, in which I hope all people of goodwill will be maladjusted until good societies are realized. But that's now starting us down the road of a very different sermon. So for now, uh, let me instead, having considered two more extreme, two relatively extreme examples of the roller coaster that our life can take us on, I'd like to expand our view to three different types of happiness. When considering the pursuit of happiness, one's pursuit of happiness often looks very different if you are pursuing a moment of happiness 
a, a happy day or actually a happy lifetime. Pursuing happiness in those three different veins all look quite different. So, for example, a euphoric, ecstatic, joyous um, moment might come from listening to an amazing song or going to an incredible concert where you're just caught up in the rapture of the performance or the crowd. It could come from being surprised by a particularly beautiful vista or a sunset, having great sex, taking drugs. All of those can cause euphoria and joy. Uh, the exhilaration of engaging in dangerous behavior. These sources of euphoria can be intense, but they are almost always fleeting. And they almost always also have diminishing marginal returns, so that if you try to keep doing them, you get a little bit less joy each time. Uh, so although there's a lot to be said about the virtues of pleasurable moments, we need to be honest that often they are not the building blocks of consistently happy days or a consistently happy life. And they sometimes carry the risk of a prematurely short life. So expanding beyond uh, pursuing an intensely happy moment, which can skyrocket you to peaks of rapture, but then uh, plummet you back down, what might um, consistently help build a happy day? In a sermon back in August, I talked about the ways in which our brains tend to be like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive experiences. Uh, so to help overcome that tendency, um, one of the best tools is what is called savoring. So since our brains tend to be like Teflon for those positive experiences, if you really just pause for a second and try to savor this thing, even just for a few seconds, that helps get, get it in there and, and build your um, tipping the scales toward more overall happiness. Uh, so things like spending time with friends, eating dessert, playing a sport, taking time for a hobby, taking time for your favorite form of happiness, and really savoring those things, that's, those can make the difference between you know a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day and tipping that over into a fairly excellent, quite great, not terrible day. And over time, the effect is cumulative. I've always found a lot of wisdom in the writer, writer Annie Dillard saying that how we spend our days, that of course is how we spend our lives, that, you know, that it, it builds up over time. So there's significant benefit that can come from delayed gratification, but it's also, a, just as it's a dangerous game to just constantly seek euphoria, it's also a danger to constantly say, oh, I'll be happy when I retire, or I'll be happy, you know, a few decades from now, um, that it's a dangerous game to risk decades of unhappy days for the promise of some abstract future you may never reach. Instead, the invitation is to consider how might you increasingly carve out some happiness in the life that you already have. And so to now expand our view one more time, consider this list from the historian Jennifer Hecht of what has shown consistently to contribute to a happy life over the course of decades. She says, cultivating things like family, friendships, celebrations and rituals that you continually return to, travel, study, skills mastered, money in the bank, community service, an attractive appearance, adventure, serving as an inspiration for others, and the final two connect back to what we've been talking about earlier. So a good life can be built from a history of good days and a history of some euphoria. So which of these might you feel led to cultivate in this season of your life?
For now, just as I began with the roomy poem, A Guest House, I'll conclude with a poem titled Happiness by Jane Kenyon. She writes, there's just no accounting for happiness or the way it turns up like a prodigal who comes back to the dust at your feet, having squandered a fortune far away. And how can you not forgive? You make a feast in honor of what was lost and take from its place the finest garment which you have saved for an occasion you could not imagine. And you weep day and night to know that you were not abandoned and happiness saved its most extreme form for you alone. No, happiness is like the uncle that you never knew about, who flies a single-engine plane onto the grassy landing strip, hitchhikes into town, and inquires at every door until he finds you asleep mid-afternoon, as you so often are during the unmerciful hours of your despair. Happiness comes to the monk in, its, in his cell. It comes to the woman sweeping the street with a birch broom, to the child whose mother has passed out from drink. It comes to the lover. Happiness comes to the dog chewing the sock, to the pusher, to the basket maker, to the clerk stacking cans of carrots in the night. So whether your dominant emotion this morning has been joy or sadness, anger or fear, you are invited each week to bring the fullness of yourself to this place as we seek to build a beloved community and accompany one another on the roller coaster ride that is this life. So I'll leave you with just a few um, final thoughts. Um, first from that, uh, you know, world-renowned philosopher Sheryl Crow, who said, uh, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. And if it makes you happy, then why the hell are you so sad, right? So I think that sort of cuts both ways, that if it makes you happy and it's not hurting anybody else, let's say, then is it really so bad? I mean, like, so when Deb asked me if they could do Pharrell's Happy this morning, I said, yeah, that song, of course, like, that song makes me happy. It's a silly pop song, right? But it's, it's infectious. And so it's, so like, you know, if something seems silly to other people and it makes you happy, embrace that. It can't be that bad. But then on the other side, if it makes you happy, it can't be, uh, then why are you so sad? Because there are also those things that people tell you, oh, this will make you happy. But, it, but if it doesn't, then don't do those things, right? If you, if you can avoid it. Two other quick things. One, um, one of the best tools I've found in my life for cultivating happiness when I'm like, feeling a little bit of like, oh, I don't feel like doing this, is, is reframing with the two simple words, get to. So just instead of saying like, for example, I have to write a sermon, reframing it to, I get to. You know, that's something it's, cause it can, I mean, I, you know, I like my job, but it's some, it can, sometimes, like with any job, there can be a relentlessness to things you have to do over and over and over, but to say, I get to do this thing. I get to say, what this week do I think may give people some hope and meaning in their life? So even with relative, you know, raking the yard, you know, well, I get to do that, actually. I have a yard, you know, that I, I mean, I don't want to rake it right now, but I just invite you to play with that a little in your life. I think you may find that changing things to get to can, 
can really reframe things in a way that can be a little happier. And the, the final thing I'll say is that both myself and, and Julie during the spoken meditation gave a number of different examples of things that can be used to cultivate either moments of happiness or days of happiness or a lifetime of happiness. Uh, so all of that is true. And the last thing I'll say is that part of what some of us may need, including myself, in our increasingly frenetic and 24-7 distraction-filled lives is actually not even a list of more things to do. It's actually permission to do less or to do nothing. And that part of what can, can cultivate happiness in our lives is switching from constantly being in fight-or-flight mode, where you're, you're con- which includes when you're constantly getting buzzes and calls and notices about things. That's putting us, your nervous system, in that fight-or-flight mode. And what we need to is to switch to what is, also, is the opposite of that, which is sometimes called rest and digest. So, you know, how, what are the things that allow you to switch off and relax and just be calm so that you're not the antelope, you know, running from the lion. You're the antelope calmly chewing the grass, you know, on the savanna. So uh, what during the coming holidays, that word holiday is, you know, a combination of the word holy day, right? Holy means set apart. So how can you cultivate some set apart time in your life in which you can rest and digest a little more, which can even be as simple as just taking a walk, you know, so that instead of you have a brief break from doing one thing to the next thing on a to-do list, instead of checking social media, just even walk around the block. It doesn't have to be a 30-minute walk, just, just these brief things that can switch you into rest and digest mode. So in a few moments after the benediction, the choir is going to sing happy again, and so you're invited to join in. You should know it at this point, Uh, so consider doing that if it would make you happy. It can't be that bad. All right, but as you go, regardless, as you go into the next week, I invite you to continue your journey with love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, or peace, or joy, that goes with you out into the world. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.